If you would, take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to begin by reading the first 11 verses here in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at one time, or at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. 1 Corinthians 15 is not only one of the longest chapters in the New Testament, but it is the most detailed explanation and defense of the resurrection, beginning with the resurrection of Jesus and then moving on to our resurrection. Paul's argument in this chapter, by way of introduction, is in three parts. The first part we've just read, and that is what they held in common, what Paul believed, what the apostles believed, and what the Corinthians believed. And then in verses 12 to 34, he takes up the contradiction in their belief. That is to say, they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead but they don't believe that they will be raised from the dead. They believe that the resurrection has already happened for them. And Paul basically says, if this is true, then your belief is futile. And then in verses 35 to 58, to the end of the chapter, Paul tackles the issue of how the dead will be raised. How is this possible? Um, Not in terms of the power that will make it happen, but what form the resurrection will take. And Paul's position is this, that resurrection for Jesus and for us will be physical, will be bodily. So as we start today, considering this, we need to recognize that the resurrection of Jesus is foundational to the Christian faith. In fact, Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans 10:9 that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is to say, for one to be a believer, to become a child of God, to be a Christian, one must believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Earlier in Romans chapter 4, he said he was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. That is to say, his death was necessary to pay for our sins. Now that our sins have been forgiven, we are now being made righteous. And this happens through his resurrection. The resurrection is why we are here today. And not simply because it's Easter Sunday. There is that. But every Sunday reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus. It's why Sunday is known as the Lord's Day. 
I just digress here a moment. The New Testament never states this explicitly, but we have three references uh, to this. The first is in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting, and it says, On the first day of the week we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. I think we need to remember that for the Jews, the day began at sunset, not at midnight as it does for us. So it is very likely that Paul was actually preaching Saturday evening because that would be the beginning of Sunday for the Jews. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, and again, this is just sort of a, not the main point of what Paul is trying to say. Now about the collection for God's people. They were collecting money for the poor in Jerusalem. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. And the implication is that every Sunday, the Corinthians got together to worship. And Paul said, yeah, when you do that, you need to bring the money that you've set aside and, and give it. They can collect it so that when it's time to send it to the poor in Jerusalem, they can do that. So it's the first day of the week. This echoes what we find in John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Let me continue reading. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the, temp- uh, for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. And then, parenthetically, John writes, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. I've mentioned two places, Acts 20 and then in 1 Corinthians 16. The clearest reference seems to be from Revelation chapter 1. John says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. We would say that this Lord's day is in fact the first day of the week, Sunday. One may make the point that Sunday as the first week marks a new beginning, a new creation. Again, to digress but not too much, Um, we need to be careful that we don't say that Sunday, the Lord's Day, is the same as the Sabbath. The Sabbath has been done away with. That's for another time. On this Easter, what I would like to do is to submit to you some things for your consideration, things to meditate, to think about on this Resurrection Sunday. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus was a historical event. That is to say, it actually happened. It really happened in time and space. Years ago, some of you may remember this if you're old enough, there used to be two main newspapers in Los Angeles, the Herald Examiner and the LA Times. Um, And every Saturday, they would have a special page for religion. 
and various churches and temples, whatever, would have little uh, advertisements there, you know, come and worship with us. And they would have articles dealing with religious subjects. Well, one particular year, by the way, they don't do that anymore. The Herald Examiner is no more. But one particular year I was struck because there were two articles, one in each, by Hans Kohn, the German theologian, somewhat controversial theologian. But in his article on the Herald Examiner, he said, without Easter, there would be no gospel, not a single narrative, not a letter in the New Testament. Seems pretty definitive. But then in the LA Times, he wrote, the resurrection is not an event in space and time, not an object of historical knowledge, but a call and an offer to faith. It's almost like, if you wish, spring coming after winter. Well, if this is true, then why does Paul mention all of these witnesses? Paul tells the Corinthians that Jesus appeared to Peter, to the twelve, to more than 500, most of whom were still alive, so the Corinthians could actually go to Palestine and interview these witnesses. He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, um, then lastly to Paul. These appearances point to the reality of the resurrection. The Corinthians could go interview these people. This actually happened in a particular place in a particular time. I think it is worth pointing out that Paul doesn't try to prove the historicity of the resurrection. He simply asserts it as a fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And then in this letter, but in also other letters, he draws out the implications. What does this mean for us? How are we supposed to live? What does this have to do with us in our faith, in our living? So, as we begin a meditation on the resurrection, this is the proper place to begin. That it actually happened. You see, there are those who see this simply as an event, well, not even a real event, but something that is um, something for us to consider in the abstract, that it somehow brings across a theological point. No, it actually happened. And it is, in fact, a historically decisive event. World history, human history, reached its climax when Jesus was raised from the dead. This is the single most important event in human history. But then this leads to the second thing, and this I will put in the form of a question I'll give to you. Which is more important to the Christian faith? The death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus? This is a totally unfair question. It's one that cannot be answered. Jesus came into the world in part to give his life as a ransom. This is what he tells his disciples. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then in Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But what we need to understand on this Easter Sunday it is, is that the resurrection is what allows us to understand the death of Jesus. Without Easter Sunday, Good Friday, I think, does not have any meaning. Peter tried to make this clear the first time he preached on the day of Pentecost. Listen as I read a part of this. Men of Israel, listen to this. 
Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made me known to, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And by the way, this is from Psalm 16 that Gia read to us earlier today. Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here with us to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised Jesus, this Jesus, to life, and we are all witnesses of that fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Christ is from the Greek, which means the anointed one, which comes from Messiah in Hebrew, meaning the anointed one. And without the resurrection, one could view the death of Jesus as, at worst, that of a victim of the Roman power, of the Roman Empire, or at best, that of a martyr, and perhaps an example for others to follow. One might say, yeah, but... He died to pay for our sins, right? He died to atone for us. That's true. But how do we know if his death was accepted? How do we know that God the Father was satisfied with his sacrifice? We know that because God raised him from the dead. Listen to what Isaiah wrote about this centuries before writes of the suffering servant, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, for he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. 
and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made trans- an intercession for the transgressors. Written centuries before the fact, Isaiah describes the death, burial, and resurrection of the one he calls the servant of the Lord, that is Jesus. And he tells us that God saw and was satisfied by his sacrifice. One more thing about this before we move on. In Romans chapter 14, Paul writes, For this very reason Christ died and returned to life. So we have his death, we have his resurrection. So that he might be the Lord both of the dead and the living. Both his death and his resurrection were necessary. The third thing that I would have you consider is Jesus is Lord because of his resurrection. We heard this from Peter on Pentecost. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. That is, God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and made him both Lord and Christ. We hear something quite similar to this at the beginning of Romans. Romans 1 verses 1 to 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Old Testament, or in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, which we just read from Isaiah, a part of that. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Question, does this mean that Jesus was not Lord and Christ before his death or before his resurrection? It does not. It does not. We have, in fact, the confession of Peter. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do they say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is to say, you are both Lord and Christ. What we see in the resurrection is not, oh, now he gets to be Lord and Christ, but rather it is a vindication. Yes, he is Lord and Christ. It is a proclamation of that truth. Jesus demonstrates that not only is he the Messiah, but he is also Lord of all. This brings out, I think, some important points. There are some who say that Jesus was not raised from the dead. Therefore, they reject that he is God. But they will allow that he's the Messiah. He was a good guy. He did some good things. They'll accept that. There's a a very small number um, that say that, yes, Jesus was raised from the dead. But he is, in fact, not Lord or Messiah. The reality is it's a package deal. Jesus was raised from the dead, and Jesus is Lord in Christ. We need to acknowledge, as frightening as it may be, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, one could say that he was not Lord in Christ. The resurrection was necessary to prove, was necessary to vindicate that he was, in fact, both Lord and Christ. 
the fourth and final thing that I would have you consider it's another part of the package deal that I spoke of and that is we will one day be resurrected that is raised from the dead just as Jesus was the reason that Paul spends this whole chapter a long chapter dealing with the resurrection is that the Corinthian believers the believers in Corinth who were Greek had somehow come to the conclusion that they were not going to be raised from the dead and if you read 1 Corinthians, you can see that the way they use the word spiritual is not as Paul uses it. They see themselves as now being in resurrection life, that it's already happened for them. For them, life in the spirit means getting rid of the body. So it doesn't matter what you do with the body, and you can see it from their behavior. Um, for them, the body was inferior why would they think that? Well, that's a very Greek way of thinking. And they were Greeks. This is the, the culture that surrounded them. This is what they had been raised with. And so their view of human beings was body and spirit. And spirit important, body not important. So they would accept that Jesus was raised from the dead. And they would say, that's great. And we believe that. Paul preached it. Uh, Peter had been there. He preached it. They accepted it. They just could not get their minds around the fact that they would be resurrected because why would God want to resurrect something that they considered of no value whatsoever? They were the people of their culture. Unless we be too harsh on them, one could make the case that the American church is also a church of its culture. So when Paul begins here in chapter 15, he talks about what they have in common. They believe in the resurrection of Jesus. If you look at verse number one, um, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. The Corinthians absolutely believed that Jesus was raised from the dead. They just didn't believe that they would be raised from the dead. What would be the point? What would be the point? The body is nothing. The spirit is everything. Paul does not agree. He does not agree. And so he continues, and if you look at it in verse number 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Verse 13. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only... For this life we have hope in Christ. We are to be pitied more than all men. Paul says to the Corinthians, if we are not going to be resurrected, if we are not going to be raised from the dead on the last day, um, then Jesus wasn't raised either. It's a package deal. His is the beginning of resurrection life. He is the first fruits. We will follow. But if you don't think that we are going to be resurrected, then Jesus was not raised either. And if Jesus was not raised from the dead, the proclamation of the gospel is useless. 
The faith of the Corinthians and all believers is useless and futile. He mentions this twice. The apostles are false witnesses, all the people he mentioned in the first 11 verses. The believers who have died, they're gone. They're lost. That's it. The Corinthians are still in their sins and they are to be pitied more than all men because they only have hope in this life and nothing beyond. But look at verse number 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In this statement, Paul reverses everything that he said in verses 14 to 19. The preaching of the gospel is not useless. Their faith is not useless. The witness of the apostles is not false. The consequences of their faith, they are not still in their sins. They have been forgiven. The dead are not lost. They will be raised in the last day. They are not to be pitied more than all men. The truth is that Jesus has been raised from the dead as the beginning of the reality of resurrection. Now, you may have noticed something that I've put off until now, I perhaps should have mentioned earlier, is that Paul writes that Christ has been raised from the dead. I keep speaking of resurrection, but the way Paul puts it is that Christ has been raised. That is to say, he was raised by another. I think this is crucial for what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Because one might say, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. He raised himself. After all, he was Jesus. He was the Messiah. I can't possibly do that. I cannot raise myself from the dead. and Therefore, resurrection is not possible for me. No, God the Father raised him from the dead. And God the Father will raise us as well. The resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all believers on the last day are related. Our hope for future resurrection is based on the reality of our faith in the past that Jesus has been raised from the dead. As the early church began, they annoyed certain people, particularly the religious leaders. And we read in Acts chapter 4 that the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. What's the problem? Why are they so annoyed by this? In fact, they put Peter and John into prison. Well, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then he is our hope. He is our salvation. Our sins have been forgiven. We have been made righteous by his resurrection. And one day we will be raised from the dead just as he was. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise us as well. On this Easter Sunday, hopefully every Sunday, because it is the Lord's Day, because Jesus was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, we should remember that Jesus was raised from the dead and that one day, by God's grace, we will be as well. It is because of his death that our sins have been forgiven. 
is because of his resurrection that we are made righteous. He began the process. He's the first resurrected person. And in God's time, we will join him. And we will be raised from the dead as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, in some ways, these are things beyond our comprehension. We can hardly wrap our minds around the fact that one day we will die. And then to be told that we will be raised from the dead. It's only by your grace, the faith that you give us, that we accept this. But on this day, we are reminded that you raised Jesus from the dead. And that one day you will raise us from the dead as well. Those who have gone before us are waiting for the day of resurrection. One day when Jesus returns, we will all be reunited. And we thank you for that. We thank you that Jesus has in fact been raised from the dead. And because of that, we will be as well. Thank you for bringing us together this Easter Sunday. May we think on these things that have been mentioned, meditate on them, keep them in our heart. And thank you. Be filled with joy at what you have done through your Son, the Lord Jesus. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. I pray in Jesus' name.